all CEOs, me included, we don't actually know what we're doing. They're all sharks, so all you got to do, though, is no shark bait. I don't think we've ever talked about this before. <laughs> we can capture all of the wallet share. First place you start is with the product. That's just the first nut. This is the Capital Stack. Hey, everybody, this is David Paul, the host of the Capital Stack podcast, where I talk to founders, operators, and investors about everything value creation in startups. This morning, I am talking to Angela Lay of Betteromics, who is the founder and CEO. She is a multi-decade executive within Silicon Valley, technologist, uh, where she... <laughs> you know, but but incredibly, incredibly prolific. Um, spent uh, a numerous amount of years in the upper technical leadership at Google, followed by being the chief technical officer of a little company called Grail, which is has raised hundreds of millions of dollars uh, for early cancer detection. Was bought by Illumina. I think they're trying to divest it now. <laughs> you know, which is whatever that means. Uh, and now you have your own startup in the life sciences business. Angela, how are you doing? Great. Thank you, David, for inviting me. Really appreciate, you know, being on your show and see how it goes. What do you want for Christmas this year? Uh, I need a personal retreat where I don't talk to anybody for a couple of days and I do not look at my phone. And yeah, I need to be an introvert for a few days. I try to do that quarterly. Um, my wife ruins it. Uh, oh, oh, don't yeah. don't tell her that. Don't say that. Don't say that. that bad. bad. You're on record. David. You can't say things like that. I, you know, I can say, but she doesn't listen to any. I don't even think she knows what I do for a living. Um, <laughs> you know, like, for someday when your kid grow up and say, "Mom, did you know?" Yeah, she she just does this about you. Yeah, she doesn't give a shit. Like <laughs> I walk, she has no idea. I walk in, I come home, and you know that's that's it. Um, no excuses. Play like a champion, Angela. What what was the tr transition between Grail? You know, I, I just real lightly, just give me a little career jumping between Google to Grail to Betteromics. Sure, sure. Um, I was at Google for twelve years. Um, for that, for my time at Google, I've worked for two people. Um, the first one is Jeff Huber, who is the chairman, founding CEO of uh, of Grail, and also you know senior VP, senior VP at Google. The second person is Amit Singhal, who is the, the the king of search, as people called him. Um, but Jeff Huber um, and Amit. Uh, on January 26th of 2016, both left Google on the same day. And it was a clear sign that it was time for me to go. Um, and so uh, Jeff um, recruited me to go be uh, one of the founding team members of Grail. Um, and it was not a difficult decision to make when, you know, the people that you admire that sponsored you at a company, you know, thought that it was time to go. So, um but of course, I learned a lot, and and it was it was a big deal to to have gone through that journey for that decade at Google when it was growing at at exponential rate. Um, but when Jeff called, in all seriousness, it was also a super noble mission um, to you know find a way to 
to help people find, um, get, get earlier detection of cancer. And it was very emotional and difficult to resist. Um, and so um, it was the beginning of this movement, I think, that is still, you know, um, happening today is, you know, biological science and, you know, chemistry is merging and is entering this big data phase and mm-hmm. um, AI development um, in, in, um, in R&D and drug and also day-to-day running biotech companies. And so um, the transition was both serendipitous and also I think is the, is the times um, that, uh, that, that Grail started um, also with a little bit of a flair like tech companies doing things that a lot of people said cannot be done. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that attracts crazy people like me um, <laughs> to, to work on it. And for the few years, it was just like Google, a tremendous journey. Because you were in this company where there are a lot of naysayers, and as a technologist, also my eyes were wide open. Um, the privilege of working with you know the best and brightest of clinicians and scientists to go after something um, that's as big as it is now. Um, that's in the news all the time for not necessarily all the right reasons, but um, nonetheless, it was uh, quite a journey. And I only had high school biology when I went to Grail. And so it was fascinating to see the development that was going so fast. And every day I see this biotech space, I feel like it is the internet being played out in a different form um, uh, a couple of decades later. So um, I really fell in love with the space, love the people, um, love the speed of, of development, and also love the fact that there's so many unknowns in this space um, that is super exciting to be part of it. And uh, after Grail, um, I still feel that the best way for me to add value is as a software engineer. Um, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a clinician. But I watched how scientists and clinicians did not have the best tools afforded to them to go through this big data journey. And so um, the learnings that I have from Grail, I started this company um, that is a software enterprise um, uh, company for for life science. and Betteromics is in providing better software um, for scientists and clinicians trying to make a difference in this space, in this new world of big data in, in health science and biology. So just to touch on that, the jump to Google, which, you know, obviously you, you were in a, in a huge inflection point. They're growing like crazy to Grail, which you were there in 2016. You were there when it started. Yeah. Now, was that, did they, did they have a thesis or were they just saying like, this is the problem set, we're going to go solve this? Was there like any like particular research that they were like betting the farm on? Yeah. So it was um, fascinating in the space of, so Grail was, uh, was a spin out from Illumina and this ah. was like full circle going around 15 times with <laughs> Illumina. Um, and Illumina had this technology from the NIPT world, which is a non-invasive prenatal test, um, which is a non-invasive way of testing the blood of women um, in order to find out information about the fetus. Mm-hmm. And, um, and if you think about it, the strange, almost slightly weird thing is that the baby is sort of like a tumor in a woman's body mm-hmm. um, because there's all this foreign DNA that's floating in the, in the woman's womb. And um, Illumina um, has, you know, has a company called Veronata um, that had 
um, this, uh, these samples from women. Um, and the clinician scientist, Meredith uh, 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 Miller, um, was conducting this research that belongs to Illumina, um, where these women have these readings that were off the charts. Um, and it was not DNA that belonged to the fetus, but unfortunately, um, cancer that was undetected in these women. And so that was the beginning of that thesis, that there is a way um, out of these um, you know, other, other research in, 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 uh, in women's health to a different way to go look at and find these signals in people's blood that belongs to a tumor. And, um, and that it would potentially detect tumors before they were detectable by other screening means that we have. And so that was the thesis that was backed by these unicerendipitous findings um, in a different test. And, um, and since then, um, because that's the beginning of the signal, then, th then it goes into the science realm of, is this the best signal or other signals um, that would be similar and cheaper to find? And so GRAIL started with that research backing and explore sort of nearby areas, so different different types of signals, and um, and did a bunch of experiments and found the best one that you know you have to balance between the sensitivity of the signal and the cost of acquiring sure. that signal, and um, and that became the first test um, that was commercialized and that took you know about three years of development. That's amazing, you know. And now I hear they're trying to get. Um insurance to be reimbursed it, um, which I yeah. think is going to be amazing. Yeah, as it turns out, that's the hard part. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, science is already really hard, and it stands on the shoulders of all the previous research, right? So mm -hmm. it's not like the one company that discovered everything. It has, you know, this trail of research that has been coming through. Um, and uh, commercialization is a totally different realm of trying to get payers to pay for it, um, especially mm -hmm. in America. That's a that's a that's also an interesting system that I came to learn at Grail where, you know, consumers don't actually pay for any of this. Um, and even mm -hmm. if you want to pay, you sort of the prices are set based on these bigger systems that are outside of what consumers do. But that's a whole different realm that's like completely whole different realm. Not your monkey, yeah. not your circus anymore. You had yeah, enough to chew. Yeah. I mean, I'm a, I'm a software engineer by training and, you know, talking science is already a little bit outside of my focus <laughs> zone. And, uh, but as a software engineer, as you know, we, we try to learn every domain and, you know, use our skills to help solve problems, automate issues in other domains. And ever since Grail, it's very difficult to find another more exciting world where mm -hmm. there's so much unknown the body is so strange. Um, biology is so undiscovered. Um, and so it's, it's fascinating to see. And having been at Grail, um, just reading day-to-day -day news during the pandemic, it was just, I just can't imagine how I would have understood these numbers so differently mm -hmm. if I hadn't been at Grail. I mean, all the vaccine development that was so fast um, so in those fast. few years, so different. Mm -hmm. Statistics is already hard, as you know, you know, even for for day-to-day, -day, you know, just understanding statistics is so hard. And a pandemic's all about, you know, epidemiology and statistics. And and having the background that Grail just made those few years, there's, a, there's yet another layer of, of what's interesting to decipher in the pandemic years. 
And so through Grail, you realized that there's a bunch of disparate um, systems of record when it comes to going through these clinical trials for these life science companies. Uh, Data is fragmented. Um, it's, it's non-uniformed. Uh, there's probably, uh, the custody, um, the compliance around the custody of this data is something that has to be desired, not to mention just business model, probably challenges within funding and stages and how does a a company, um, exist. So when I look at betteromics and correct me if I'm wrong, it, it, kind of looks like a, um, a, regulated secure data lake slash warehouse for um for data for healthcare science data in which it's you you basically serve as a system of record and then you can be interoperable with all the stages along the clinical discovery journey is that my my genius david dude i I know (laughs) no one believes me How can they not? I, know. I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. No one thinks I'm a genius. Well, I do. Okay, good, good. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so that's, the, the, yeah. The, the space is um, because of the regulation, um, and and I, I actually experienced something super senior, uh, super similar in uh, finance world. And this would be this would be interesting for especially for some of the audience and, and that are interested in investing. There's a lot of parallels between life science and fintech. Um, fintech went through such a revolution, right, in the last 10, 15 years. And fintech was very similar. People are very careful with building their IT systems because it's regulated. Mm-hmm. Um, life science is like two orders of magnitude more so in the way that people are willing to tolerate risk and how systems are built because this, you know, this risk averseness is so important and this exacting, you know, of how you deal with your data, how you store it, how you govern it, like you said, the data governance of it and custody of it, the records of it, being accretive, you can never delete anything. Um, In life sciences, because it's life and death is ever more important. And so the, the, what was difficult to operate in fintech, um, you know, there is just you know, two orders of magnitude more complicated in life science. And it's, it's all the, you know, practices of how it was before the digital revolution of fintech in the last, last 10, 15 years is exactly the same in life science today. And it would take longer than fintech to, to adopt it. And there will be more exacting and more sort of like carefulness in how to do this. And I say that also because at, at Google, I was responsible for rewriting the payments platform when the company was going from, you know, the $40 billion business to $100 billion business. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was that risk averseness that made, despite all the advances that Google was in, um, its finance system was pretty archaic. There are a lot of manual steps. And automating it is very difficult because... The operators that are so smart and so careful with so many regulations um, wants to be careful about this. And so that transformation is very difficult. And But you figure it out, you know, and, and there's value to it and value will be generated from it. In life science, I think it's the same thing. This data silo, the data is super important. 
And because every sample matters, the sample size is small. It's not like buying toothbrushes. Everybody buy toothbrushes, two toothbrushes a day. Um, it's the same toothbrush. People are very different. Biology is very different. Samples are very scarce. And so every piece of data matter. And mm-hmm. so you have to be super careful about it. And the data government is ever more important because of privacy, because of security, because you also don't want to overfit. There are all kinds of technical reasons as, as well as human reasons um, for this, this data to be so exacting in these silos. And so, but just like every other industry, having transparency and linking the data together so you can analyze it like a through train is important and will generate value. Um, but making that digital transformation um, is work. And, mm-hmm. you know, hopefully we're in the middle of that to help generate value for, you know, people that have this data that needs to figure out how to create new products from it. So when you look at the market, what does it look like to you um, on this side? Are there just a couple big players with this real large long tail of people innovating and the big players buy them? How do you think about positioning your software for that? Yeah, pharma is super strange, right? In healthcare, it's like there are mm-hmm. these big players that is this barrier for for um, sort of adopting new things. And once again, I I hearken to how fintech made that transformation, and fintech's the same. In every mm-hmm. corner, there are a couple of really big players that will adopt things in you know corners, and then over time, it will get adopted by the industry. Um, and I think that, you know, they're, they're, you know and, and the macro climate plays a lot into it. And in the last two years, it hasn't been, the, the world hasn't been very kind to biotech. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's been difficult for people to think about how to make these transformation when capital is scarce. Um, but I think it's also an opportunity for people when they wake up, hopefully people are waking up into 2024, um, that there is an opportunity to do things more efficiently and adopt new systems to do it because the economics has to change, right? Everybody talks about how R&D in pharma has to continue to shrink in how much, you know, they spend um, because only, you know, 5% or less of the drugs make it to the market. Mm -hmm. And it's important to figure out how to make it more efficient and make it more predictable, anything that can reduce risk. Just like every industry... Having transparency in data is one of the best ways to reduce risk. And so, you know, I, I think that there is either going to be the mid-sized companies that figure out how to adopt it in corners, and then it gets acquired into, into the bigger farmers, or it is a runaway success, which in, in pharma hasn't, there hasn't been a lot. Where <laughs> There's not a lot of stories for that, yeah. Yeah, somebody can show what that looks like. I can't, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know sure. which way um, this will win. And as a platform, though, as a company, the reason that I want to be a platform, um, it's, uh, you know, you, you, you don't really care who is doing the gold digging. You want to be building the picks and shuffles. Um, mm-hmm. And so I remember in 98, I talked to Diane Green about utility computing um, but AWS didn't really take off as a thing, you know, Diane Green of VMware and, 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 um, AWS didn't really, people didn't really know what utility computing is until, you know, well into the 2000s and 2010. And so I see infrastructure for helping get transparency into data and breaking down these silos as something that is a must happen 
kind of thing um, in the next decade or two. And for me, it is finding those champions that seize um, the, the opportunity and want to be first in market and partnering with those um, sort of like visionary leaders um, at the current stage to make this, you know, be a reality. And I hate to, I, I would like to say that this is technically the most difficult thing to do. It actually isn't. It is the same playbook that has happened in other industry that just absolutely needs to happen in life science. So has there just been a technological change that, or that's enabled this to be solved currently? Is it that you, as a, as a, as a founder, have the gumption to tackle it? How, what, what, what's yeah. changed in the timing perspective? So one of the things that I think, you know, I mean, technology has gotten a lot better. And one of the characteristics of life science is that the data um, is changing in its definition. So if you think about ad tech, fintech, a transaction is a transaction. There's time with it and there's the size of it. Micropayments make for a much bigger scale of these transactions. And so generally, large scale read and write has helped um, with how that how that gets developed. Recently, even in tech, um, there's a lot of innovation in natural language, um, mm-hmm. in understanding um, not just the text and not just the transactions, but the meaning of things. And that's, you know, I mean, I, I was privileged to work at Google and build this thing called Knowledge Graph, um, which Google was one of the few companies that can afford to do it because it's mm-hmm. deep technology that takes a lot of resources. But now every, you know, Every university student, graduate student in computer science understands and can build a knowledge graph. And that gives um, a flexibility for understanding of data that is very much needed in life science. In life science, it is not simple data. These are reasoned, deep tech data, deep science data that has very complicated data models. And they cannot easily be done with relational databases. Mm. Um, and so, and it's also evolving because we don't yet know how biology works. Mm-hmm. And that's a hallmark of um, data that requires a knowledge graph is that you have to have flexible ontology. Mm. And so we are tackling it um, with a knowledge graph based system so that our customers can add new entities, new understanding of the data without having to a priori decide what the schema is. It's sort of like if you don't quite know what the the map of the world is and you are building it, you need a very flexible system mm-hmm. to know how the roads would go. Mm-hmm. And you know, and all those entities, you know, you need a place where you can dump all that data in but still be able to search it. Mm-hmm. Um, which is how a lot of these new language systems work. And I think that we have that technology now much more popular than it was 10 years ago. And it makes for a much more flexible system that scientists that are doing discovery and therefore requires this flexibility can use the system and accretively build the knowledge into the system and make this data be usable and understandable for discovery. So the 5% of drugs, the 95% that don't make it to market, would you say that that's because of execution runway versus it just didn't work? The thesis, the science wasn't there. I'm sure it's just both, right? Yeah. I mean, there are there are ones where the data is not there, where you can't quite tell whether it didn't make it because it didn't have the data or it really is not the right thesis. You just don't mm-hmm. know. You can't tell. And, 
Yeah. And there are a lot of things that are on the shelf, even though it doesn't work for this particular manifestation of disease. I mean, there are things that molecules that are sometimes on a shelf that can be used for something else. And so there is, it's the thesis, you know, is quite narrow, right? When in, in pharma, when you start and you don't know when it says it doesn't work, what are the end factors that can make that data actually be reusable? Um, and so that's where I think your value is, is like, what about all the stuff that doesn't yeah. work? Right. And what's sitting on the shelf? Yeah. And we meet a lot of clients that says, look, we actually have a lot of data. There's a lot of research. There are times when when you talk about, you know, where the capital is, they're ready to do it. There's also not manpower. I mean, biology is complicated. Mm-hmm. You may not have all the data and all the experiments to run and not all the, you know, you know all the, all the um, you know, environments to run all the experiments that you want. But research, you know, takes accretive knowledge. And um, a lot of our clients uh, have, have data that they know they want to dig back out and keep developing. And that's great. You can out. actually be, you're, you're the, you could be the research tool. Like, that's going right. forward when you compound yeah, and, and because this data could be in any format, in the past, it was very difficult to dig it back out. Mm-hmm. We're people from Google, you know, we're like, I don't care what data format you have. <laughs> I don't actually care, you know, where they're stored either. Right. We can just use the knowledge graph, you know, index it and make we it. We invented search, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, it, you know, enterprise search is like one of these new, really important, um, it, it is, it is, it is an idea that you can search your own, you know, database, your own corpus, um, uh, from from you know by building your own search engine. And in the past, it was like it feels expensive to do. These days, search is a solved problem. If you mm-hmm. have a corpus, you want to search it, you can do it. And life science is a little different, mostly because the technology and the deep, the depth of the science makes this data difficult to surface, right? Because it's really his own language. And even, even as simple as looking at all the doctor's notes, it's not really English, you know, it, mm-hmm. it is English, but it isn't. Mm-hmm. And so you sort of need this knowledge graph based search to make sense out of this very particular language that speaks deeply to science and you have to understand the science to make the search make sense. But all that is much more available if you use a knowledge graph approach. And so going back to where people have a corpus of data, you just need to figure out how to, you know, rediscover the value in the data that they have. Like we have customers that, that would say, we have 10 years of safety records and it's in random, you know, non-OCR, you know, data or even in paper that is in a vault. And currently they know there's a gold mine there. They don't know how to mine it. And we are that tool that mm-hmm. helps mine all that data so that we can understand it now in this, you know, new ways of, you know, looking at, you know, textual data that is not just the big world of English, but we can, in an exacting way, look at particular diseases, derive understanding and knowledge from it, and help our customers look at it in a is much there, more meaningful way. Is there a world where, since you're going to be, if like, you know, greater vision, you can monetize their research that they can be compensated for the research that hasn't gone anywhere for them? Um, so I have 
been staying away from that. Um, mm-hmm. I think for us to be a true infrastructure platform, we need to stay away from generating IP ourselves. We don't want our customers to think that we're competing with them. Right. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got so it. we want to be the engine. If we need to be a neutral infrastructure. Well, no, but if you're if you're going to be the system of record and people can pay you to read somebody else's research, would that person who input that research can be compensated for that, even though they might be unrelated projects? Yeah. So we do have professional services in a company, okay. but I'm trying to build a software company right. and all investors say, Angela, you can't, you know, we're not going to value a professional service company. I get it. Mm-hmm. And so there is professional services, but we need to be very careful because our customers want to know that there's no sort of like conflict of interest, that you have engineers that learned my IP and now you're taking it to another right. company and using it. So we want to be very careful of that. Because if we aren't doing that, then no customers would trust us. Trust us. Right. And in this space, in pharma and life science, if you don't have trust of your clients, you can forget it. What is something about the life science, farm, big pharma uh, industry that you've learned that the public doesn't know? Oh, so many. Where do I start, David? I mean, because everyone, I think, has a general consensus. It's this big, dark, gloomy, you know, uh, business. You know, it's, you know, the vampires, you know, always looking out for the margin, the dollars. And I just don't know if that's true. And I don't know, you probably would never say that, (laughs) you know, considering that you're, they're your customers. But, you know, like, what is, what is, what is your been experience and what what is something that like the the industry doesn't know or the people don't know? I think the space is super opaque. Uh-huh. And so I think that they really value marketing and storytelling. Mm-hmm. And there is almost a layer between the actual science and, you know, how the story is told to the public. Mm-hmm. And like I said earlier, you know, I remember reading, you know, when, when the pandemic started, I would read, you know, re- media reporting of the vaccines. Mm-hmm. And because I've had a few years of just super superficial training in reading scientific journals, that how statistics and how this kind of science is reported in the public is so different from how a clinician or a scientist would talk about it. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's so easy to spin. And for the public, it's like it's very difficult to follow. Mm-hmm. And I, it's, it's something that I you know, I, I don't have the skills. I, I really, you know, look forward to meeting more people that know how to do the storytelling to make this very complex story of biology and science and have it be understandable by mm-hmm. the day-to-day person that just wants to read a thousand word article or even a hundred word mm-hmm. article and not get misled mm-hmm. on, you know, what the significance of whatever it is. But by regulation, you know, there is the disclaimer is almost always longer than what the, the effect or of anything is. Right. And it's so difficult to understand. I mean, even when you listen to an advertisement, you're not really supposed to. You know, there are all kinds of regulation on how you advertise, you know, therapeutic, therapeutics to the public. And for the public, they hear much more about the side effects. Right. Right. No, exactly. So, and it's so difficult to decipher because of this, you know, regulation centric, you know, way of approaching and who is supposed to the authority and be able to recommend diagnostic therapeutics to, to patients. Um, 
yeah, I, I, I really, I really wish that there is, there is like a way to make it more accessible. And I think that that would be a great breakthrough for the world. Where are your, what are your thoughts on all these specialty pharma, um, you know, medicines that are coming on the market? It seems to be a huge boom in personalized medicines, you know, biologics, um, infusion therapies. Yeah, it's the future. And, and, you know, that's where also in terms of development of it, that's where our platform really shines, yeah. you know, when you have these generics that that is, you know, small molecules that can, that has, you know, these these big blockbuster drugs, um, they they act a certain way, but the biologics, precision medicine, they are, they are studied differently. And the data sizes required to develop them tend to be more complex and you know, at bigger scale. And so this is where, as a computer scientist, those are, you know, important development. And also, because there's so much data in it, the early statistics, it's still early, too, maybe too early to tell, but in the last, I, I can't remember where I read, um, in the last however many, you know, years it has been, these new types of therapeutics, large molecules, are much more successful. The success rate is much mm-hmm. higher than the small molecules. Um I mean, I don't have a hunch on why besides that, A, they can be more exacting. There's more data to tell. And the experiments is therefore, you know, there's a lot more to study. And maybe that helps shines the light on whether these molecules work. And the science reasoning of it is much more transparent because there's mm-hmm. more to study about it. But, you know, that's that's me as a computer scientist talking. Mm-hmm. And when I look at it, like, of course, there's more data here. You wouldn't... Right. But I'm not a scientist, so, you know, we still have to ask the scientists on whether that is the case. But I think these large molecules, in terms of volume over time, for sure, is going to take over compared to the small molecules. When you're an early stage research researcher, research group, research lab that's, you know, doing a drug or, you know, a therapy, can you pivot? <laughs> like, you know, if, you, if something doesn't work or is it like, you know, you get the grant or you get the funding and if your thesis doesn't work, you basically, it's a wash, yeah, I assume that they do that all the time. Like, I, yeah. I, I don't want to represent scientists, but I imagine that, you know, like I said, I think a lot of assets, you know, go on a shelf and it's like, oh, but I can do use that for something, do something else. Okay, so they would do something else with it as opposed to yeah. like taking that that pool of money and switching it. Yeah, I, well, you know, I, I'm not really in that space, so I don't know how they do it. But right. you're right that in that world, compared to tech, there is a lot more, you know, a lot of these companies are not that big. Is mostly mm-hmm. around an asset, and they do a lot of outsourcing in terms of doing experiments with it. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, in the different you know phase gates, they decide what to do, whether they get onto the next phase and or pivot and or sell it and or you know however they they do it. Gotcha. Um, and so, hypotheses are, you know, there's there are plenty of hypotheses that are that are waiting to you know take the next stage. Um, mm-hmm. And sometimes they, they do change. And, you know, they're all, you know, biology is all related also, right? I mean, mm-hmm. one thing affects the other. And so there are, but the discovery of it is very opaque, mostly because we still don't understand a lot about how we, how you and I work as a being. Mm-hmm. Uh, last question, unless I decide to ask another one, um, which happens yeah, all I'm the gonna time. Count. <laughs> is you went from big company successful tech executive to early founding team of a very successful company to being the founder themselves. What's been like key learning, you know, what you didn't know back then to now? Um, 
So many. You ask these like questions that are so difficult to answer, David. Um, you know, it's, it's a humbling experience to go from a big company to a small company. Mm-hmm. Because at a big company, you know, I had a thousand people working for me. And I'm like, you know, of course I know everything. I work in the top of the world. <laughs> I like Google search engineering. I mean, what is there that You're I You're the boss, know? applesauce. Yeah. Exactly. And it's a very humbling experience um, that in smaller companies, you have to do more to be successful. You have to be a lot more flexible. You have to be a lot more versatile. Because... You know, in in the large company, things are sliced so thin that every task has a person, a team, or a whole organization to take care of it. Mm-hmm. And your your the requirement of the job generally is something very deep, and is not as multifaceted. It's like a single facet of this company that you really need to excel at, mm-hmm. even at you know relative you know going towards. I was like a general manager of like a thousand people, right? But mm-hmm. you only have to know so much to be successful in those roles. Mm-hmm. When you go to a smaller company, there are fewer resources, but every company still has all those functions. Mm-hmm. And when I founded this company, you know, I always tell people, I'm, you are talking to the business development team, the sales team, <laughs> the CEO of the company, the founder, shareholder, CFO. and the editor, all right. in one person mm-hmm. because there is no there's not as much differentiation in the job but that's also the fun of it right mm-hmm. I, you learn a lot more and i i have to say though it, it's much more tiring um but the personal journey and the personal growth is something that i i won't give up it's it's like so good to be that's forced awesome. to have to learn all these things that i don't know like i'm not I, I'm clearly a lot of people would be able to figure out right away. I'm not a salesperson, um, but you can't just hope to hire people to do everything. So mm-hmm. at the beginning, you just have to do everything mm-hmm. and you have to wear all the hats and you have to be able to, you know, compartmentalize what you're doing every minute and focus and be super versatile. And so problem solving and, and it's accelerating. I mean, every day regulation change and, you know, in COVID, we all had to learn, well, you're the CEO, you're responsible for making these policies. As in what policy, right? <laughs> and so, so it's, it's super interesting. I think that on a personal level, um, it's, it's a, is a great opportunity that is, that actually is a privilege to be able to do it. Angela, you're amazing. Oh, thank you, David. You're, you've been so good to talk with, and thank you for inviting me. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. If I ever go to San Francisco, we're, we're going to go get drunk together. That sounds great. Um, you're somebody I'd like to drink with or to drink coffee <laughs> with. <laughs> um, everybody, thank you so much for listening to The Capital Stack. We drop an episode every Tuesday. If you like what you hear, please tell a friend and uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Capital Stack Podcast. Make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content. Remember to support this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. David Paul is the founder and general partner at DWP Capital. All opinions expressed by David and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of DWP Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. David and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed on this podcast.